we will be uh, looking at our gospel reading this morning. Um, I'm going to keep it a little shorter uh, today because of our because uh, of our play here. So I couldn't possibly unpack all that's there. But I want to look at a particular dimension through Joseph, um, who I've been thinking a lot about this last couple of weeks. Um, to be honest, it's been a couple of stressful weeks of work for me. Um, the workload has been very demanding. Deadlines have been very tight. There have been a lot of stuff to stay on top of. And to be honest, I, I think I dropped a couple of things along the way. And there was a particular moment where my anxiety kind of was triggered quite badly. And at times, to be honest, I've you know, in my work, uh, I felt a little bit ashamed, vulnerable, alone. I don't know if you ever have those feelings when you get triggered in anxiety. I certainly do. Um, at the same time, um, where I'm kind of wandering through these emotions and trying to keep myself together and do a good job, I'm also, part of me is very uh, aware that the troubles that I have are very relative to other comforts that I enjoy that others don't. Employment, housing, food, health, community. Uh, I'm aware that at moments like these, there are many people near and far who are suffering from a lack of those things. I'm aware, for example, that almost 1,000 Ukrainian children have died so far in this Ukrainian crisis, and many more have been injured. Millions of Ukrainian children have been displaced, with many being forced to flee from their homes and country. In fact, according to the UN, one Ukrainian child per second has been made a refugee. I see that coming through my computer screens when I'm involved in my own anxious thoughts about my job. It's asymmetrical. And for me, this asymmetry between my experience and that of others, those of others who are suffering, makes it very hard for my conscience to experience God's grace and experience of his presence in the things that I face in my own finite daily life as a person, as a man. It seems kind of indulgent or selfish. Now, if I draw a circle around that troubled way of thinking that I have, I know it's flawed. There's some truth to it, and there's some untruth as well. Uh, in the end, I can identify with our liturgy of confession where we say there is no health in me. What there is, is the reality of myself as a mortal, finite, insecure, and sinful person, and also a loved, saved, redeemed, renewed, and reconciled person. I can't try to figure out this mystery of my own existence nor justify my cry for God's help with compensating good works that balance the scales of justice. Somehow, God finds his way to me. Somehow, God can address my own condition and the condition of those around me that I see and hear but can do little about. That's been going on in my mind and my heart these last couple of weeks. So I've taken some inspiration from Joseph's predicament, which in my own struggles this month, presented to me a picture of how God attends to a man with grace. So in verse 18, we have the beginning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. There is so much to unpack in the scripture that I won't be able to address today, but I'll just give you a little taste. It's interesting the way that this introductory sentence happens. Birth here uh, can be translated as origin. In fact, it's the same word that you'll find in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy. So genealogy and birth here are the same word. 
could have been a different word. There is a word that strictly means birth. So what Matthew seems to be saying is that here we have the origin or uh, genesis of. And we'll notice here that it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus Christ. Now, I often like to, in fact, I prefer to say to myself when I'm preaching Jesus the Messiah, because Jesus Christ seems like a name to us after all this time. It's very important to understand that Christ is not just a name, it's the Greek translation of the Jewish word Messiah, sent one, anointed one. In fact, there's another variant reading in this text uh, which has a lot of attestation, which means it, it could have almost been chosen to say uh, the birth of Messiah, where the name Jesus isn't even in there yet. And the reason I, I focus on that is Matthew is, is weighting the phrase towards Messiah. This is the origin of the Messiah. This is the origin of Jesus, who is the Messiah. And you'll find that parallel to verse 1, chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. All right, so Matthew's telling us about the origin of Jesus who has a mission. And so what Matthew is saying is this is the beginning of the messianic mission of Jesus. It's not just the crucifixion. It actually starts right here in this way, he says. The focus is on the Messiah. The origination of the messianic movement starts here in this way not just at this time, but in this manner, meaning that Jesus' messianic calling starts with his birth as a human being. His becoming like us is part of his messianic calling. So there's a lot there in that little phrase. And the event poses a challenge to Joseph. Joseph interestingly, gets the bad news before he gets the good news. God does not tell Joseph about Mary's pregnancy before he finds out about it himself. You know, come on, God. <laughs> Couldn't you have made it a little easier? Hey, Joseph, you're going to get this news. Don't worry. Oh, thank, God. thank you for telling me. No, it, it happens the other way around. Isn't that odd? God knew this, of course, but Joseph's preparation for this moment in his own life, because for Joseph, it's not grand. It's, it's just his life. And in Joseph's preparation for this moment, it did not include advanced warning. How true to life, isn't that? Rather, his preparation for this moment was the formation of his character as a devout Jewish man who had been shaped his entire life by Torah, the law, and the temple, the sacrifices, the worship of Israel, both their obligations of justice and their character of showing mercy. And so as we move into verses 19 and 20, it was because of Joseph's character that he responds the way that he does. He resolves to divorce Mary quietly. Two components of this response. As a just and devout man, a righteous man, 
he realizes that there's a consequence to birth out of wedlock, which is what he was faced with here. And yet, as a merciful person, shaped in the narrative of God, whose name is chesed, mercy, he resolves to divorce Mary quietly. But he is troubled. And this is the word that spoke to me personally in this last month. He's troubled that it's snuck in here under this concept of, uh, in verse 20, that he considered these things. That's a soft way of describing this Greek word, considered. He's ruminating. It's, uh, it's, it could be easily translated um, as cons uh, uh, concerned by or even angry about. He's troubled inside, and he's pondering, and he's working through these things. Joseph was not a weak or passive character in a play. He was a man of stature, of integrity, of, of intention, and he found himself in a very precarious situation. Torah's demands on adultery were significant, and so was the social shame that would apply to Mary and her child. A lot rested on Joseph's decisions here. And the outcome would be by no means certain. Simply having resolved to act justly and compassionately did not rescue him from the precarious situation. He didn't just think up a plan and then turn over and get back to sleep. He was considering these things. He was upset. He was emotional. He's stewing about what this is going to do and what the impact uh, will be for him and for Mary and the child. And at this point, he did not know God's perspective. He did not know what Mary knew. He likely pondered the impact of all this on his future and on Mary's. This was Joseph's problem. He was not thinking about the problem of oppression of Israel, the problem of sin, the problem of Israel's history and the meaning of the future. He wasn't thinking about any of that, though God was thinking about that. God was thinking about all of that, and he was thinking about Joseph. Joseph isn't just a means to an end for God. He's not just a character in a plot. He isn't expendable. He's a real man. He's a finite real man. And yet he is intersecting with something and someone so much, so, someone so much bigger than him. I feel that pressure as a Christian. I feel that pressure of knowing so much, of being so limited, and yet understanding such a grand view that God has disclosed to us in Scripture. I struggle with being in a place and in a time and for a limited duration, knowing that there's so many other things that I could be doing and maybe even should be doing. I don't know if you struggle with this. So sorry if this <laughs> is just only my own rumination, but there is a place and time that we find ourselves in. And Joseph, to me, speaks of this reality. And so in verse 20, we begin to move into God's intervention. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream with reassurance and an explanation. And the manner of this reassurance is very important. The way that this is disclosed, and it's very moving to me, he says, I know your name and your identity. What does he say to him? Joseph, son of David, I know who you are. And not only that, 
I know more about who you are. Joseph ben David, Joseph son of David. Now if you look at verse 15, uh, uh, 16 rather, you'll see that Joseph is not the son of David, he's the son of Jacob. It would have been more proper for the angel to say Joseph ben Yaakov. But he doesn't. He links back into the genealogy that you'll see going back to verse 6, where the, Davidic, where the line of Jesus goes back to David, the king, the, the type, the messianic type. And when the angel approaches Joseph, he doesn't say Joseph, son of Jacob. He says Joseph, son of David, of royal lineage. It's an amazing thing to be called and was certainly startling and assuring and inspiring to Joseph, an indication that this is not a normal moment. And then he attunes to, day, uh, to Joseph, attuning meaning, I recognize your fear. I feel what you're feeling. I see the conundrum you're in, and I'm not blind to that. He says, don't fear, don't fear. He says, I see you moving in a direction. You're gonna move this way, but I want you to move this way. And I don't want you to be afraid to do that because that's gonna go against your, con it could go against your conscience as a righteous man. It could go against your sense of compassion by exposing yourself and Mary and this child to shame, but I don't want you to be afraid of that counter movement and then there's a confirmation of action. I want you to go ahead and take Mary as your wife. And it's informative. There's a reason, he says. It's because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Swift, concrete, practical, specific, informative. Just what a man needs to calm his fear. God is saying, we can take care of this together because I've got this. I want you to join me in this. I remember when my son Nathan called me and he, he hadn't quite crossed the line being able to ask Sarah to marry him. And he wanted to, I could tell, and he just needed a little nudge. And uh, I remember the joy, I, I, it brought me a great deal of joy to walk him over that line on the phone. Um, and it gave me a great deal of joy to hear in him the rush of knowing that and, 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 and excitement to take the step that he wanted to take and now with a little guidance from his dad felt confident to take. I wonder if Joseph may have felt that way, um, but there's more. This is not just a mere explanation. It's not just a mere idea. Here we see the transposition of Joseph's problem into a whole different mode. His vision is lifted from the scope of his own self and his wife and his community into the scope of God's promise for Israel and for the world. Joseph was to play an essential role in that. It's not just the solution to his own problem. It's actually bringing him into, as a participant into a much larger agenda. Joseph would actually name the Messiah 
as Joseph was named Ben David by the angel and established in his role as the earthly father of the Messiah, Joseph would now fulfill that role in part by naming and later protecting Jesus. Joseph's role as a Torah-observing and believing Jewish husband would be fulfilled now, not in divorce, but in parenting Jesus as a father, the one who names and protects. This is what God has done for Joseph, the first century man, the pious, ordinary Jewish man, the man, the person, like me and like you. This would be enough. But in this particular event, there's even more to this story. The solution for Joseph in his predicament is not just an explanation or a rationale or a sense of direction. It's actually God himself. Here we encounter God in a way that he has not ever been encountered before. God with us. Here we find two names for the Messiah. The first is Yeshua. God saves. And not just any old kind of salvation, but salvation from sin, the angel says. Now, that would have been a kind of an unfamiliar concept at the time. Had the angel said, he shall save his people from the Romans, or he shall save his people from the sinners, that would have been comprehensible. That would have been known and understood. That has been prophesied. But here, God conveys that he shall save people from their own sins. An even more fundamental reality because it acknowledges that, yes, we are oppressed, but we are also oppressors at the same time. Jesus would solve the fundamental problem, which is our own culpability and our own contribution to the brokenness. We don't know yet what we know by reading to the end of the gospel, how that will eventually culminate. But now we know an even more significant or more special name of God, which is that he is with us, Emmanuel. No one saw that coming. No one foresaw that God would become flesh. That was just God's own imagination. No one could have possibly thought that God himself would become a person, a human, and dwell among us as a human. It was and still is nearly unfathomable. Jesus, not just the idea of Jesus or the Messiah, but Jesus himself was the solution to Joseph's problem. It wasn't just the explanation in the dream, it was the baby in his arms that would provide the way out for Joseph and not just for him, but for everyone. Joseph wasn't just being selfish and ruminating about his predicament. And if he had cried out to help in prayer, the text doesn't say, but it would have been very fitting. It is fitting for us to be like Joseph to bring the life that we are just actually living to God in all of its smallness and contradictions, and messiness. Paul says that we should be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests known to God. The answer will be for us like it was for Joseph, personal and explanatory 
And most of all, it will be brought through the presence of Emmanuel, God with you, God with us, God with the world he came to save. You never know how your own story will intersect with other stories and other things that God is doing that are much bigger than you. Emmanuel entered into the strict and narrow confines of human nature in order to reconcile all things to himself. And it is into his hands that we entrust ourselves for the atonement of our sins, for the healing of our bodies, for the meaning and purposefulness of our lives, and for the hope of his return and the making of all things new. Beck and I were facing other challenges early in our life uh, during a time, a season of difficulty when we were in Israel, when we were young. We were living and working there, part of the Anglican Church in Jerusalem. And in the midst of some of the pressures that we were facing at the time, I happened to meet a British musician named Adrian Snell on a tour that I was helping to lead. Uh, Adrian's music was very different and touched me very deeply. On a walk one evening in Galilee, he shared a vision that he had, had, that he had for creating a requiem using poetry from children who had perished in the Holocaust and other contemporary global conflicts. He wanted to introduce a, a slight classical element into the work, and he was struggling to find the right musician, he told me. <clears throat> I felt like kind of a fool. But I managed to blurt out, my wife is a musician. <laughs> She's a classically trained violinist, and I think he should meet her. <laughs> Felt like a kid raising my hand in the back of class. <clears throat> I managed to introduce them 30 minutes before he left for the airport later on that week, 30 minutes. Within a few weeks, Becca was on a flight to England for three straight days of intense recording in Bath, where she laid down the violin tracks that established the melodic voice to the entire work that expressed the tragedy and the hope of suffering children that Adrian was trying to convey. It was deeply and is deeply moving material. I happened to get Adrian's annual newsletter just a few days ago as I was grappling with this passage of scripture. Adrian shared that on November 11th, the Requiem was performed in London's Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral during England's Armistice Day. The evening was attended by diplomats and Ukrainian leaders and performers and raised funds for mental health work and trauma counseling for Ukrainian children and mothers who fled the war and for refugees who were on the front lines. The performance was live streamed on Ukrainian television. It may have been a different violinist that night, but it was Rebecca's composition that was being broadcast. I struggle with being anxious about my job, knowing that others in Ukraine are suffering terribly. It seems so small. But November 11th was a sign to me that in God's providence, a small intentional act I took way back on a walk with Adrian in Israel years ago played a very small part in offering hope to people I did not know then and do not know now and cannot reach on my own. It's like a sign of God with me. 
Maybe you are like Joseph or know someone who is upright, sincere, caught in a hard place, wondering what the future will be. Perhaps you wonder whether your life matters. Perhaps you struggle with trust and despair. You are not alone. Jesus will save you from your sins. Jesus is God's with us, God with us. He cares about the things that you care about. He is able to remind you of who you are. He is able to give you direction and agency and something to do that brings light into dark places. He is able, finally, to bring you to a life that will never end. Amen.